I am delighted to join an author checking in from Maine this morning named Joanne Lannon, who has written a tremendous book about women in sports journalism called Who Let Them In? Pathbreaking Women in Sports Journalism. Joe, thanks for joining me this morning. And what was the inspiration for you behind writing this book? Oh, yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me on, Wayne. Um, it, it really was an inspiration to, to talk to all these really wonderful pioneering women. Um, they went through a lot, that's for sure, in those early days, especially. Give us your background a little bit, because you yourself are into journalism. Yep. I was a sports journalist for three years before switching to news and feature writing. Um, this was with the Portland Press Herald here in Portland, Maine. And um, so, you know, I didn't stick with sports for a number of reasons. Um, back then, it was you know, they still called sports departments Toy Town. And um, I guess I felt like, you know, to be taken seriously, I had to be doing some news and feature writing. And that kind of, that was a great job to have in Maine because I got to go all over the state and even into Canada to report on a lot of different things. But anyway, you know, my heart never left sports. Um, and so I wanted to explore what these women who, who I had met early in my career, I wanted to, you know, find out how they stuck it out and, um, you know, what their challenges were um, and, you know, just try to get some insight into the struggles they endured. And it was, it was just a lot of fun to connect with all these women. Joe, in your days of being a sports writer, did you have occasions where you were excluded from locker room situations that male sports writers had an opportunity to get? Um, I, you know, I, the only locker room, you know, high school, I covered high school and college, and they didn't let women into the locker room at all. I mean, it was just, you know, it wasn't even something you would even ask permission for. Um, I do remember the Celtics came to town for an exhibition game one day, and, and they let me into the locker room. Um, you know, I'll never forget Dave Cowens just kind of sitting by the door with, with you know, maybe he had a towel on, maybe not, Um but everybody else was really, really gracious. And, and, I mean, he didn't say a word to me, so that was okay. I just ignored him. That's what women had to do back then. They really had to ignore, you know, anybody um, who was trying to make an issue out of it, if they could. All right, full disclosure, I, of course, am into sports journalism, been broadcasting UConn games now for 43 years, and I've been doing sports work for over 50 years. Chapter one of your book is Why Mary Garber Matters. Full disclosure, I never heard of Mary Garber. Why does she matter? She matters because, um, she, well, she spent her whole career, um, a half century's worth, in Winston-Salem, and she... Um, she was so well-loved, so well-accepted that she really, you know, she she made it easier for other women. You know, I mean, the guys would look at her and say, wow, she's doing a great job. And so if another woman came along or they had a, ch a chance to hire another woman in, in another town or city, um, they were more apt to do that just because of Mary. Um, you know, Mary really was a groundbreaker. She... Um, well, she did her homework, and, and she did it the right way. You know, she didn't pull any punches, but she also had a great um, rapport with a lot of the coaches. She, you know, she was smart enough to know that um, if she could get the coaches on her side, then she, you know, was going to get everybody else on her side, and she did. 
I enjoy the story in your book about Leslie Visser, who people know from the Boston Globe and from television and the like, but she had that same exclusion thing. And I love the story about how she waited outside a locker room and waited for, I think it was Terry Bradshaw, and he came out and thought she was a fan and started signing an autograph, and it turned out, no, she wanted an interview because she couldn't get to him in the locker room. Tell me more about that. Yes, she she actually wrote about that story in her own book, um, and now she thinks it's funny. You know, back then it was like just another irritation, just another, um, like standing out in the rain for an hour waiting for people to come out. It was... um, you know, it was something that you would think, writing for the Boston Globe, you know, you would think she would be accepted. I mean, you would think that they would have said, hey, you know, somebody's here from the Globe, we got to let her in, or we got to at least let her talk to the people she wants to talk to. But that, you know, that wasn't always the case. And, and so people like Terry Bradshaw didn't even know who the heck she was just because they're, you know, the PR department wasn't really looking to give her access front cover of your book has five particular women in sports broadcasting, including the aforementioned Mary Garber. And you've also got Susan Waldman, who has been doing color commentary for the most part, a little bit of play-by-play, on New York Yankee radio broadcast. And the irony about her, as you write about this, is that she was born in Newton, Massachusetts. I remember going to a game at Fenway Park when she sang the national anthem, and she was a Broadway actress. She could never get away with that now, being the Yankee voice. She wasn't the Yankee voice back then. But as a sports broadcaster, I am very impressed with the job that she does. John Sterling just calls the game. She's the one who fills in the gap. She adds information to what happened. And she does a great job on the pregame show and on the postgame show. But what she does is unique. I am not aware, Joe, of any other woman who does color commentary or who is in the broadcast booth for a major league baseball team. Tell me your thoughts on Susan. Susan is, you know, one of a kind. Um, She, I think because, because of her musical career, um, she's not afraid of anything. And she, I think what makes her great as a color commentator is that she's, you know, she's, she knows she has to do her homework and she knows how to get to the people that can help her. And she doesn't try to act like she knows, you know, how to, how to break down Aaron judge's swing when he's not, you know, when he's on a bad streak, um, she'll just go to him and say, what's going on. And, um, I think the fans appreciate that. She's also not afraid to criticize the team when she feels like they're not putting out the effort they should. And, and yeah, I mean, I think she's just a great compliment to, to Sterling. And, um, you know, there's, as you know, there's move towards um, having former players be the color commentators like the Red Sox. You know, they, they now uh, have just hired Will Middlebrooks um, and um, Kevin Euclid. And I mean, those are great hires, but um, there's no reason why, somebody who didn't play major league baseball can't you know be an expert on what's going on out there you wrote susan waldman considered a rock star by women hoping to follow in her path and you wrote doris burke espn's first female full-time analyst on national NBA broadcast. Picture of Doris right there on the cover. You wrote a chapter on Doris saying, Doris Burke at the top of her game. Absolutely right. I know Doris very well. She's done plenty of UConn men's and women's games. But in my opinion, the 
talent that Doris Burke has, she is better than 90% of the men that I hear doing games. But the fact that she's gotten to the level that she did and being able to broadcast play-by-play of NBA games speaks to her quality. Tell me your thoughts on Doris Burke. Well, Doris is, you know, a little different from Susan Waldman in that she did play the game, you know, at a pretty high level in, in high school, really good high school team and college. Um, She's still in the record books, top 10 record list at Providence College under her maiden name, Doris Sable. That's right. And she coached for a while, too. So, I mean, she really knows the game inside out. And that comes across in her broadcasts. I think um, people really appreciate, again, the homework she does. You know, she'll get there first thing in the morning, even though the game's not until 7 o'clock at night. And she's talking to players, she's talking to coaches, and she's really, you know, getting down to the nitty-gritty. She's also, I think, um, she's been doing it a while, but, I mean, I would say that she is now really at the top of her game because she's so willing to be herself. You know, you hear her laugh, you hear her make jokes about different things. And I think fans really, really um, connect with her um, and, and I think that's part of what makes her so successful. And she's a nice person as well. Joe, tell me the story of how the glass ceiling was eventually broken of allowing women sports writers or broadcasters into the locker room, which they were not previously allowed to do, and how that may have affected access to the players from men's who were covering the game. Well, early on, you know, when women um, were trying to get access, uh, the men reporters were not on their side because they did worry that they wouldn't be able to get in. And there were teams that um, created the separate area, you know, for the media um, because they didn't want women to get into the locker room. So they kept both men and women out. So that that really was, um, that was a tough thing. Michelle Himmelberg, who wrote, out in California. Well, actually, she started out in Florida. And, and the team, I think it was Tampa Bay, the football team, they put up a wall, and all the reporters called it Himmelberg's Wall. Um, and they were, you know, just really angry with her because she wouldn't just back down and say, oh, okay, I'll wait outside. Um, so that made it tough. But, I mean, slowly but surely, women did break through the glass ceiling. Uh, Melissa Lutke who wrote for Sports Illustrated, was the first. You know, Sports Illustrated took the Yankees to court to get the locker room open after she was denied access. I think it was the 1977 World Series. I think the court case um, was in 1978. But anyway, um, so she was really among the first. Claire Smith, um, you know, she, she had a big role to play, too, because Major League Baseball... She covered Major League Baseball for years and years and years. And for a long time, it was up to the individual teams whether women could come into the locker room. And um, the San Diego Padres were so rude to her that um, the commissioner of baseball um, finally decreed, okay, that's it, not taking any more of this. You're all going to let women into the locker room, and that's, that's that. And, uh, but that wasn't until, you know, the early 80s. So, so it really did take a while, and and even now, um, you know, there can there can be rudeness certainly, and uh, attempts to keep women um, at arm's length, I guess you could say. But for the most part, 
you know, society has changed so much. For the most part, it's just not a big deal anymore, which is great. Great to see. I can say this as having covered the UConn women's basketball team in NCAA tournaments. I've been part of the radio crew and also just covering games for this radio station is that the way that they generally handle it with the NCAA tournament is that they have the locker room open for 40 minutes after the game is over and the players are there. I've walked into the UConn locker room, done interviews and left. Then at 40 minutes, they say out and then the players can shower, clean up and, and do their thing by the same token I almost feel that from what I have seen, it used to be that I could go into regular season locker rooms, talking in my case, UConn, but other sports as well. And now that's not an option anymore. And I think that women in journalism are a factor in that. So what they do is now they bring the players out or they bring the players to a podium. What that does is that limits the writer's ability to maybe talk to one player who didn't have a key role in the game, but they want to do a feature on that particular player. That isn't on the table anymore. But I think that we all kind of find a way to do it, and the teams have found a way to do it, to work around the awkward situation of having, for example, a female journalist inside a male locker room. Yeah, and I think the pandemic had a lot to do with, you know, that because teams realized, you know, um, Media still needs access. Um, of course, it was on Zoom in those early pandemic days. But the podium has become the way that they they can actually pick and choose who they want, you know, the media to talk to. Um, when I covered a Final Four, I forget which which year it was. It was in the it was in the 2000s because UConn was maybe it was 2000. UConn was in um, Philadelphia. Yeah, Huskies won it that year. Yep, that's right. And I remember, you know, they had the podium. So Gino was up there with several players. And I was thinking the same thing you were. Hey, you know, where's so-and-so? I'd really like to talk to her. Um, they did let people into the locker room, like you said, for a short period of time. But by the time I, I felt like I had to do the podium thing, when I got to the locker room, you know, she was gone. She was in the shower. So, I mean, it, it's really, it really does. It's not the same as it used to be. Well, you touched on the pandemic, and because of COVID, sports journalists were not permitted in locker rooms for over a year and had to find other ways to communicate before and after games. So has the locker room access lost some of its importance? Well, I don't think any sports journalist would, would say that. I mean, I think they all feel like there are stories they, they've gotten because they were in the locker room. You know, there are things they can follow up on because they're in the locker room. Um, and and sometimes there's just no other way to get that access um, because, you know, players come and go. And, and once they're dressed and ready to go, they feel like, oh, sorry, you know, I, I, I don't have time to talk to you. But um, in the locker room, there, well, there's two things that go on in the locker room. You get that immediate right after the game reaction. Well, kind of like Gino last night when Holly Rowe tried to ask him at halftime about the um, what was going on, what he was going to talk to his his kids about, and you know he just went off on the on the officiating. And, and granted, that wasn't in the locker room, but it was the kind of thing that you get the you get the coach or the player in the moment when they're really you know right into it. So that's one thing that's good about the locker room. The other thing that's good is that um, sometimes players are relaxed reporters get to know them and they get ideas for feature stories because that's a big part of journalism today um everybody's got the news the news is on twitter before you know 
before anything. So reporters are always looking for, you know, different angles, features and things. And, and a lot of times the locker room is a great place to follow up on things and to get to know players. Um, and, and so I don't think you'd ever find a journalist who'd say locker room wasn't important. Yeah, Nika Mule said after the game that that furious Gino that you saw on TV last night was the same Gino that came into the locker room at halftime. What about you, Joanne? What was it that got you interested in being a sports writer back at a time when there weren't a lot of women sports writers around? Well, you know, that's true. Uh, My inspiration was Leslie Visser um, because she had just started writing for the Globe. And uh, I was teaching at the time. And I used to use some of her articles in my English classes because she really, you know, obviously knows how to turn a phrase. And... um, and so I started writing columns for this little weekly newspaper in the town where I was teaching, and they were mostly about sports, because I grew up in Boston. Um, so I was a huge Celtics fan and a huge Red Sox fan. I went to a World Series game in 1967, and, you know, Bob Cousy Day was a really, um, when he retired, that was a, a dark day in our household. Um, so I was always into sports. My, my twin sister and I grew up just playing basketball um, on the driveway with the hoop nailed to the garage and, and hitting home runs in the backyard and running around the bases and all that. So I guess it was in my blood. Um, I, um, well, this is a real aside, but um, I, have, I have a famous ancestor. His name is J.J. Lannon, and he owns the Red Sox. Um, during their really good years, 1913 to 1918. And um, so my father would tell stories about J.J. And my father actually worked for J.J. because he also owned a couple of hotels. And um, so, you know, growing up, it was like the Red Sox were part of our DNA. And um, that's what really got me interested and kept me interested in sports. And as far as writing it, I really never thought I could like I said, until I started seeing Leslie Visser's name in the Globe. Um, and one thing led to another, and I just decided, you know, teaching. I love teaching, but I loved writing more, and I just wanted to see if I could do it. So, I, you know, I sent out my resume and got the job in Portland, and that was that. That's great stuff. I just Wikipedia'd him. I, frankly, I'm a Red Sox season ticket holder. I never heard of him, but Joseph John Lannon Born in 1866, a Canadian-born American baseball entrepreneur, he was the sole owner of the Boston Red Sox for most of the 1914 through 1916 seasons, during which the team won two World Series. And a link farther down says he brought Babe Ruth to Boston. I'm assuming that's after his days of being a star hitter with the New York Yankees. But nonetheless, that's uh, quite a lineage that you've got with that. Were you affected at all, or were the people you covered, how were they affected by Title IX, the ability to get equal opportunity of girls with what the boys were getting, especially at the high school and college level? Well, I mean, Leslie Visser tells the story about um, getting a, a, uh, a scholarship or a grant of some sort right after Title IX, and, and it allowed her to have an internship as a sports writer. Um, which, you know, wouldn't have happened if Title IX hadn't come along. But I think, you know, when Title IX came along, sports editors started thinking, well, maybe we should start covering, you know, women's sports. And I'm assuming 
some of the guys in the department weren't all that excited about it. And I think that also led, I know for me at the Press Herald, that led me getting a job because um, I covered a lot of women's high school basketball. I mean, I also did my fair share of golf and football and all that. Um, but I think, you know, it, it really did open up opportunities for women to write about sports. But women, you know, it's funny because women didn't want to be pigeonholed as just writing about women's sports. Um, they wanted, they realized that, you know, the general public still wasn't taking women's sports all that seriously. And so if they wanted to be taken seriously as journalists, you know, they had to get their foot in the door to cover football and to cover, you know, men's college basketball and all that um, to be taken seriously. You know, back 40 or so years ago, the Hartford Current used to have beat writers for the Red Sox, beat writers for the Yankees, and beat writers for the Mets, among other teams, including the Celtics and the like. And I bring that up because the Current had a tremendous Yankee beat writer named Claire Smith. I really enjoyed writing her stuff when she worked for The Current. How good was she? She's in the Baseball Hall of Fame now in the journalism branch. Tell me your thoughts on Claire Smith. Oh, I love Claire Smith. I think she's a great writer. And she, um, yeah, she really, her career really took off when she was able to start covering the Yankees. And, um, I mean, she was, baseball was her thing. Um, she, I think she told me that she wanted to be, maybe her family wanted her to be like a doctor or something, but you know, she knew her heart was in sports and her heart was definitely in baseball. And she used to go to Dodgers games and, um, back then, and I remember this from my growing up years back then you could actually wait outside, um, Fenway park or, or wherever the stadium for the players to come out and they would sign autographs and you could actually have conversations with them. And Claire, you know, struck up conversations with players and, um, she was actually encouraged by them to become, you know, a sports writer, you know, because because they said, hey, you know, if this is what you want to do, you should go for it. Joe, are women's sports journalists advocating for increased coverage of women's sports? I think they are now. I don't think they were, you know, that they weren't out there, you know, pounding the pavement trying to get their papers or broadcast um, outlets to cover women's sports. But I think they are now. In fact, I, I um. I heard an interview with Jackie McMullen. She was interviewed right after Title IX turned um, 50, I think. Is it 50? Yeah. Um, anyway, she said that, you know, she actually said she wished she had done more women's sports early on. Um, but, I mean, obviously, she, Jackie was making a name for herself as one of the best pro basketball writers around. And so, um you know, she really wouldn't have had time for that anyway. But, I mean, I think she she and other women's sports writers have, have realized that, you know, they they have, I don't know, I mean, they have the opportunity, I guess, to help move things forward. And I think a lot of them feel that responsibility now, now that they've made it and they don't have to worry about being taken seriously. Joanne's book called Who Let Them In? Pathbreaking Women in Sports Journalism is not her first book. She wrote, Finding a Way to Play, the Pioneering Spirit of Women in Basketball. 
What was the theme of that book? Um, actually, it was kind of the same theme. Um, I wanted to really kind of research the history of women's basketball and then pick out the players and the issues that really stood out in terms of the last, well, 100 years almost. No, it is 100 years since the game really um, took off for women. Um, and so I did – actually, there's a couple of good Connecticut um, connections in it because I wrote a lot about Rebecca Lobo um, because, you know, a women's college basketball, Immaculata, really put women's college basketball on the map. But Connecticut – um, once they had Rebecca Lobo on the team, really took off, and the national press jumped on board. And Rebecca was so, you know, um, you know, she had the charisma. She had, she was articulate. She really helped move the game forward. And plus, the fact that UConn, because of her and obviously other players, became a national powerhouse. That really, um, really helped the NCAA you know, decide to, to vote more time and, you know, stations like ESPN to decide to spend more time on women's basketball. Totally agree with Becca. She's been so good on television, both as a studio analyst and also as a sideline analyst as well. You were a UConn women's basketball fan. Who were your favorite players back in the day? Um, well, Super is my favorite player of all time, just because, you know, there's just there just is not another player um, who does what she does. I mean, those no-look passes and those, you know, effortless three-pointers. Um, and under pressure, there's there's nothing like her. Um, I don't remember who wrote the book, but the book B- Bird at the Buzzer. That was my friend Jeff Goldberg. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's been in the studio here talking about that book. Oh, all right. Yeah, that was a great book because it was a great, you know, obviously a great moment in UConn sports. Um, I mean, who can not like Diana Taurasi? She's the GOAT. Uh, Brianna Stewart, I met in an elevator once, so, you know, she's a favorite now. Um, and for an elevator meeting or for what she does on the court? <laughs> because of what she does on the court. I mean, she's single-handedly, well, with Bird, I suppose, uh, made Seattle a powerhouse. Not to mention four years at UConn, four national championships. <laughs> right, Exactly. And, and those Olympic teams, those Olympic teams are amazing, too, and they're stacked with UConn alumni. And you were a fan of Brittany Griner. Any details on that? Um, well, you know, when the WNBA started, I, I was, well, she wasn't there then, but, I, you know, I started going to a lot of Connecticut Sun games. And so um, anytime they, Phoenix came to town, I would go watch Brittany Griner. I just think that she's... Um, She's got it all, and, and well, you know, her, her most recent experiences, I think, also show that side of her that's really human, and, um, you know, um, I, just, I just think that she's really good for the game, and obviously, you know, um, the WNBA uh, wouldn't be the same without her. Yeah, Brittany, a teammate of Dinah Tarazi, who I agree is the GOAT, the greatest of all time, but... Joe, you were not a big fan of the WNBA concept when it started. Why not? Um, I liked the idea of the ABL. The, you know, the, there was a rival league, um, and they, I forget how many seasons they played, maybe three. Um, Jen Rosati was one on, the, on the 
the local team. I just like the idea of, you know, people playing basketball in the wintertime. Um, and I went to some of those games. I thought, I thought it had a chance, but then, you know, the WNBA obviously had the NBA's backing. So Rebecca Lobo and, and Cheryl Swoops and uh, Lisa Leslie, they were smart to latch on to the WNBA as opposed to the ABL. What are your thoughts on Holly Rowe, who gets some of the cherry, the big-time assignments with basketball in general, but women's basketball in particular, and what she had to go through at halftime with Gino last night? <laughs> I know. She's really good at what she does. She, um, Yeah, I mean, she's been through a lot, She's, but she's. Um, I think she is very – it's very easy to have a rapport with her. She's really good with the players. But you can tell they really like her a lot. Well, she's been through a lot, and I think she's been very human about that. Um, the, you probably know the story about how um, she was doing the color commentary for a game, and, and this was during the pandemic, and the, the announcers, their feed dropped out. And she had to do the play-by-play for like two or three minutes. And she was, you know, flawless. I mean, she was great. Not surprised. I've met her a couple times, and she's delightful. Had some nice chats with her. But full disclosure, Joe, okay, so you were a fan of UConn, and for that matter, the Connecticut Sun, but you transferred your allegiance to Stanford, and now you root for Indiana. Connect the dots. Okay. Um, Well, I play senior women's basketball, and uh, it's a three-on-three game. I guess, you know, now that now that three on three basketball is in the Olympics, people know what that's all about. Um, but anyway, our team in 2009 went out to Palo Alto for the national senior games, and our team won the national championship. And um, we got to tour the the Stanford locker room. We got to to meet one of the coaches, not Tara Vanderveer, um, but I have met Tara Vanderveer since then. Uh, I just really loved Stanford. They were, you know, they had a really good team then, and obviously they've had very good teams since then. So, yeah, I guess you could say I've kind of switched my allegiance to them, although it's really hard to stay up late enough to watch their game. So. Well, another one of your favorite teams now is Indiana, and they knocked off number two Ohio State last night. Why are you a Hoosier fan? <laughs> I'm not surprised they beat Ohio State. I mean, Mackenzie Holmes, who's from the town I live in now, Gore, Maine, she's incredible. And when I was, it's funny, when I was um, teaching um, our, and I was coaching freshman girls basketball, we had to go up against Mackenzie Holmes. Well, no, she actually wasn't on the freshman team, but I would sit on the varsity bench. And so, you know, our team would go up against Mackenzie Holmes and it was like, wow, <laughs> she's going to be something someday. And it really didn't take very long. Um, She's really, really, and I think um, in very subtle ways, a masterful post player. I mean, if you watch her footwork, you'll just be amazed. She can shoot with her left hand or right hand. Um, You know, that step-through move, you know it's coming, but you still can't beat it. Lastly, Joe, would you advise a college student, male or female, to go into sports journalism? Well, I would, yeah. I mean, if you love sports, then then it's the perfect thing to do. It's changed a lot. I mean, you you know, men and women today, they have to know how to do everything. Um, and a lot of sports journalists have left journalism because they're like, oh, you know, I don't want to have to do a podcast every week. I don't want to have to tweet after, you know, every single 
you know, play. Um, I just want to write. But, you know, the ones that stay, they're the, they're the multitaskers. They're the ones that can do all those things, including sometimes, you know, hoist the camera and take video. Um, you know. Well, on those lines, too, one thing that's changed in the last 10 or 15 years with television journalism, sports casters is that they used to travel around with the photographer now they bring their own camera they set up the tripod aim it where they're going to stand and they do the whole thing themselves and they cut it up themselves that's a big change and it's just a way of them saving money condensing their expenses when they cover games home or on the road joe this is a tremendous book i really enjoyed reading who let them in Pathbreaking Women in Sports Journalism. Anybody who's interested in women in sports journalism ought to pick up this book. It's a hard copy book by Joanne Lannan, L-A-N-N-I-N. We talked about Jack McMullen. She wrote the forward for the book. A lot of fun talking this morning, Joe. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Wayne. It was a great time.